Today's scripture reading is from uh, the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, near the end of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children, Lucy and Susan, are on the hill of the stone table on a moonlit night. From a distance, they watch tearfully as Aslan the the lion submits to torment from the white witch and her rabble of monsters, who are there because of the treachery of the girl's brother, Edmund. Aslan is bound, shorn of his golden mane, muzzled, then tied to the table and killed. After these vile creatures have gone, the two sisters creep out of their hiding place to approach the table. They spend the rest of that night weeping over Aslan's body. When dawn comes and the girls are shivering in the early morning coolness, they turn from the table to try and warm themselves by walking. As they watch the sky turn red and gold from the sunrise, they hear behind them a great cracking, deafening noise. They hurry back and are overcome with yet more grief at what they see. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Suddenly, their cries and questions are interrupted by a great voice from behind their backs. They looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Susan tries to ask him if he's a ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? he asked. Finally, after both girls have flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses, Susan asks a pressing question. But what does it all mean? But what does it all mean? A better question simply could not have been asked of Aslan, or more importantly, of the Savior he so closely represents. What is the meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus have to die? In other words, what does it all mean? This morning, as we continue our series, Knowing Our Father, I invite you to reflect with me on the cross. My prayer is that we would have a clearer understanding about the importance and true meaning of the incarnation, that is, God becoming human, about his death and resurrection. You see, to some, it bothers them that Jesus had to die. It unsettles them. To them, it seems almost like child abuse. The the cross to some seems unnecessary because they would argue that God could have easily declared forgiveness. God 
then Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer and there would have been no need for blood. Uh, But the reality is that the death of Jesus is front and center in Christian theology. Understanding why Jesus chose to live among us and to die for us helps us understand the nature of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the, the passage that Mike just read for us, Paul draws our attention to Jesus as the supreme example of self-sacrificing love. It's widely believed that this was an early Christian hymn. These verses describe the paradox of self-sacrifice. By emptying and humbling himself and becoming obedient, Jesus, in turn, was highly exalted. This serves as an important reminder for us that the greatest are those who serve. And this, of course, is directly opposed to the teaching of the world, where the greatest are those who are served. Well, we'll look a little closer at these verses, but not in too much uh, detail at all this morning. Paul describes Jesus here, he says, first of all, that he was in the very nature God. All he's saying is that Jesus was already in very nature God before he came into the world. He was always God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we have these familiar verses. In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And even though he was in the very nature God, Paul goes on to say that he he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. The New Living Translation describes this, uh, translates this verse, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He deliberately and voluntarily set aside his rights. And so he made himself nothing. J.B. Phillips translates this, he stripped himself of all privilege. All the privileges of God that he had, he stripped himself of those privileges. You see, he was unwilling to use his privileges as God for his own selfish ends. Sure, Jesus used his divine powers when he performed the miracles and he healed the lame, but he always did that under the direction of the Father and the Spirit. John chapter 5, verse 19 says, This is Jesus himself saying this. He says, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. And so Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. And Paul goes on to say he was taking the very nature of a servant. The word taking here does not imply an exchange somehow, but rather an addition. You see, he already was God. He he never gave that up, but he did take on the form of a lowly servant. We know that Jesus did not come to be served, rather he came to serve. And he perfectly demonstrated this after the Last Supper when he grabbed a towel and 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 a basin of water. And he poured the water into the basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying him with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so here's this picture of Jesus, who was fully God, who's taken on the the form uh, of, of a servant. 
And he goes on to say, being made in human likeness. He became, in other words, what he'd never been without ceasing to be what he'd always been. He was God. And so in addition to that, he was made in human likeness. Think about it. Here is Jesus who chose to be born as a baby, to live as a man, to suffer as an outcast, to die as a criminal, and being found in appearance as a man. And sometimes this phrase can confuse. It seems to say that Jesus wasn't really a man, but that he simply looked like one. In fact, it is saying the exact opposite. Namely, that at first glance, he appeared to be a man and nothing more, yet he was way more than what he appeared to be. And so Jesus, taking the very nature of his servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, ultimately became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The New King James Version translates this verse, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And because he did that, because he was obedient to the Father's will, God exalted him to the highest place. And that's the paradox of self-sacrifice. By dying, he was exalted. Jesus was obedient to his Father's will and plan. Sin had entered the world. There was a price to be paid, and and this sin had separated man from God, and man had become an enemy of God. They were unreconciled to him. The Bible tells us that the wages or the cost of, of this sin is ultimately death. And the only way our sins could be forgiven was that Jesus would bear the punishment for them. And he did. This ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, in many ways, did not have to die. But he chose to die. God, in this one act, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why the cross has become a symbol of God's love and sacrifice. And there is no greater love. Why did God do this for us when we did not deserve it? We deserved a a far more horrible and tragic fate. But he did it as a self-sacrificing act. And this self-sacrifice is the highest act. God the Son enters our world in the lowest of all conditions, lives an utterly ordinary life for 30 years, experiences everything that we experience, points the world to his Father in his teaching and his life, and then willingly performs the ultimate sacrifice. He gives his life for all the world. The Lamb of God taking away the world's sin. And in doing so, he declares, I will sacrifice myself for your good. There is no greater love. The motivation of God the Father in sacrificing his Son as a substitute is uniquely revealed 
shockingly and startlingly exposed in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. There we read, Yet it was the Lord's will, it was God's will, he says, to crush him, that is Jesus, and to cause him to suffer. Think about that. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The death of Jesus was God's plan, God's purpose, God's will. And so this verse answers the question, who really killed Jesus? God did. God the Father was ultimately responsible for the death of His Son. God is telling us, I purposefully determined to crush my Son with my wrath for your sins as your substitute. Why? Because I love you. When you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, stand before the cross and look at the wounded, dying, disfigured Savior and realize why He is there. I believe the Father would whisper to us, isn't that sufficient? Isn't that enough? I haven't spared my own son. I deformed and disfigured and crushed him for you. What more could I do to persuade you that I love you? And that's how far God's love goes. And that's what it all means. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson's words on the staggering implications of the crucifixions. He writes, When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to Himself. We would almost think that God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure his love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. Friends, the cross is the heart of the gospel. It's what makes the gospel good news. Jesus died for us. He he has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. And God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. But God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. He persuades us that He loves us. What more could He have done for us? James Bryan Smith in his book, book, The Good and Beautiful God, tells the amazing story of how author and speaker Brennan Manning got the name Brennan. Growing up, his best friend was Ray, Ray Brennan. They did everything together as teenagers, and ultimately they even enlisted in the army together, and they fought in the front lines together. One night while sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the good old days while Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Suddenly, a live grenade came into the foxhole. 
Ray looked over at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. Later, when Brennan became a priest, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. He couldn't help but think of his friend Ray Brennan, and so he took on the name Brennan. Years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. They sat up late one night having tea when Brennan asked her, Do you think Ray loved me? Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch, shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and shouted, What more could he have done for you? Brennan said that at that moment he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus wondering, Does God really love me? And Jesus' mother Mary pointing to her son saying, What more could he have done for you? The cross of Jesus is God's way of doing all that he could do for us. And yet, we sometimes wonder, does God really love me? Am I important to God? Does God care about me? And Jesus' mother responds, what more could he have done for you? So how do we live in light of this truth? What do we do? First of all, I want to say that we need to embrace the cross. We need to embrace Jesus. The Bible repeatedly says that all of these spiritual blessings and benefits are available to those who put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ alone. For it is by grace we have been saved. What have we been saved from? The terrible wrath that we deserved. But Jesus took that on. And the only way we are saved from that is by God's grace alone, through faith. If you've never embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, my hope and prayer is that you this morning would get an understanding and appreciation for how much He loves you and what He did to pay the penalty for the sins that we could not pay ourselves. He paid it all. And for those of us who have embraced the cross, I'd like to suggest that we need to reflect on the cross daily. I know in my own life, it is so easy to take for granted what Jesus has done for us. The fact that he self-sacrificed himself, that he gave himself up for me, is a truth that is easy to sing about in church and then to kind of race through the next seven days, six days, only to kind of be reminded of again and say, oh yeah, Jesus loves me, he died on the cross for me. But I think if we would make it a practice, just daily at some point just to reflect again on the cross and what it means and why Jesus died 
See, typically we emphasize the sharing of the gospel with others who don't know Jesus personally. And that is obviously a good thing to do as well. But I do think that it's good practice as believers in Jesus Christ to daily reflect on, on Jesus' sacrifice. I think if we continually reminded us of that, we would be reminded of His love and His grace and the price that He paid. John Stott writes, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. And I love the imagery of that. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. And so as we daily reflect on the cross, as we draw near to the cross, as it were, that we would then continually be reminded of God's love for us and then our own love is kindled. Perhaps we can start with just simply memorizing and meditating on this one sentence from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. We need to reflect on verses like that and others that bring us back to the cross and what Jesus did for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We also ought to celebrate the cross. See, I don't think, when we think about perhaps all of the struggles we can face in life and challenges we're facing, and there's no doubt that sometimes life can be really hard. But when we stop, embrace the cross, and reflect on the cross, and celebrate the cross... There is a deep and profound joy that fills our hearts and our souls. And it's just like, wow, I'm saved. Jesus did this for me. And so we move on to rejoicing in the Savior who came to save sinners. And so we can lay down the luggage of condemnation and we can kneel in worship at the feet of Him who bore our sins. Maybe we cry tears of joy in amazement at what Jesus did for us. You see, understanding why Jesus died lets us marvel at God's love and to rejoice in it. And so in a word, this is great joy. And lastly, we're always then challenged to live a life that reflects God's character. We're made in His image. We're His image bearers. And so as we get to know the Father, and that's the whole point of this, of this series, as we know the Father, ultimately it will affect the way that we live our lives. And so if we live our lives in a way that reflects God's character, this is, this is true for every characteristic that we've all already looked at. 
that God is generous, so we ought to be generous ourselves. God is loving, so let's be loving. God is holy, so let's be holy. God is self-sacrificing, so let's be self-sacrificing. You see, because when we willingly sacrifice our own needs for the good of others, we are participating in the image of God. Sacrificing yourself for the good of another is, a, is, a sign of, is not a sign of weakness, but it's the greatest power the world has ever known. And just before Paul uses these words in Philippians that we just briefly looked at, in verse 5, he's writing to the Philippians and he says to us, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. You see, and then he went on to describe what Jesus has done in humility and self-sacrifice. He gave himself. And because he gave himself, he was exalted. C.J. Mahaney, in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, tells this story. It was a crowded morning in Starbucks, I was standing with several customers who formed two parallel lines leading toward the counter. As my turn came to step forward and order my coffee, the young man serving me smiled and said, Hey, how are you? For a number of years, I've been giving a particular response to that frequent question. I do it as a way of preaching the gospel to myself every day. I've also found it at times to be an effective opening for sharing the gospel with others. I used the words again that morning in Starbucks. Better than I deserve, I answered. Immediately, the guy behind the counter began challenging my self-assessment. He was moved, I think, by compassion and a genuine concern that I was unreasonably uh, um, deficient. I was unreasonably deficient in my self-worth. When I didn't buy his assurances, he seemed irritated. Finally, he challenged me, have you killed anybody? No, I told him, no, I haven't killed anybody. But I went on to talk about how serious my sin was. Partway through the conversation, I I turned to my right. The lady in the next line was staring at me with a look as if to say, I'd recommend decaf. (laughs) In fact, the entire place seemed to be listening to my explanation. I concluded by simply telling the young man, as I approached the point of tears, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I meant it. Though at times it seems to convince people that I view myself too negatively, the simple truth is that I understand who I am and where I deserve to be. I deserve God's wrath. But instead, listen to these words, I'm God's adopted child. I'm forgiven of my many sins. And I'm loved by Him. I'm going to heaven. I'm doing so much better than I deserve. And that's true of all of us. May we reflect on the true meaning of of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because as the hymn writer puts it, lest I forget Gethsemane, 
lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary.